It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Welcome to the Hotel California. I, I never thought I would be leading the podcast with a story about the Eagles, but here it is. It begins back in the late 70s when there was a writer working on a book about the Eagles that wound up never being published. But in his research, he got about 100 pages of notes and lyrics related to the smash hit album, Hotel California, and that included handwritten drafts of lyrics by songwriter and drummer Don Henley. Okay, flash forward a few decades. The writer, Ed Sanders, sold this stuff to a prominent dealer in rare manuscripts. This is according to no less an authority than the New York Times. And this guy had sold rare papers for Norman Mailer, Tom Wolfe, Bob Dylan's archive. Well, a couple years ago, Manhattan prosecutors said that this manuscript dealer, Glenn Horowitz, and two other men had been charged with conspiring to possess stolen property valued over $1 million that included, you know, early drafts of uh, songs like Hotel California and New Kid in Town and Life in the Fast Lane. And now they're going on trial. And Don Henley may testify. He told the grand jury material was stolen. So there you have the beginning. All right, now that we've gotten that out of the way, a lot to get to today. Glad you're with me. And story number one, we've now seen the indictment of the FBI informant in the Biden investigation, the Hunter Biden investigation. And this guy, the details are really fascinating. This guy claimed to have major league ties to Russian intelligence. And lawyers for Hunter Biden say he led U.S. authorities down a rabbit hole of nonsense. Now, I have gone through the actual indictment. And bear with me because, you know, some of this gets kind of dense. I'll try to simplify it. And for one thing, I'm not going to go through the charade of referring to public official number one, that's President Biden, or businessman number one, that's Hunter Biden. There's no dispute about that. So the guy's name, Alexander Smirnoff, and I'm sorry, but every time I see his name, I can't think in I can only think about him holding a bottle of vodka. But he had some business contacts with the Ukrainian giant energy firm Burisma in 2017. And that led to these bribery allegations against Joe Biden. By 2017, Joe Biden is out of office as vice president. And that this source, this FBI informant, expressed bias against Biden and his candidacy. But when he was interviewed by FBI agents last September, Smirnoff repeated some of his false claims, changed his story as to other claims, and promoted this new false narrative after he said he met with Russian officials. Smirnoff also claimed that he met with Burisma official number one, a couple of months later, around the time that Biden, as VP, made a public statement about the then prosecutor general of Ukraine being corrupt. And by the way, and he should be fired or removed from office. And let me just quickly add, 
As vice president, Joe Biden didn't make policy. He was sent there as President Obama's envoy to get rid of this guy who was widely accused of corruption. So people don't twist it. So this is all in 2015. And at that meeting, according to this now discredited Smirnoff, although it's an indictment and we haven't heard his side, um, the Burisma official admitted he had paid Hunter Biden $5 million and Joe Biden $5 million each so that Hunter will take care of all those issues through his dad. The evidence of trial will establish that no such statements were made to Smirnoff because in truth and fact, I love the way these things are written, Smirnoff met with officials from Burisma for the first time in 2017 after Biden left office as VP. And this Ukrainian prosecutor had already been fired a year earlier. Smirnov's story to the FBI was a fabrication, an amalgam of otherwise unremarkable business meetings and contacts that actually had occurred, but at a later date than he claimed, and for the purpose of pitching Burisma on Smirnov's services and products, not discussing bribes to Joe Biden. So, the guy he met with, that Smirnov met with, in 2017, it's the first time he had left North America since 2011. His travel records established that he could not have attended a meeting in, in Kiev, as Smirnov claimed. At no point did the meeting between Smirnov and this Burisma person tell Smirnoff that Burisma had hired Hunter to protect us through his dad from all kinds of problems. And based on his own travel records, Smirnoff did not go to Vienna around the time when Biden was vice president in 2015. Nor did he make the phone calls he claimed in which he told his FBI handler that this Burisma official said he was pushed to pay Joe Biden and Hunter Biden had text messages and recordings that show he was coerced to make such payments. And it would take investigators 10 years to find the records. When Smirnoff was interviewed by the FBI again last September, he reversed himself and said he did not speak to Burisma official one on the case as after they met in a German-speaking country in 2016. He's never spoken to the guy. All right. I think even walking you through the legalese, a little bit into the legal weeds, you get the fact that this FBI informant lied about just about everything, but most notably in terms of news value, that he never had these Russian intelligence contacts that he claimed to have. Now that leads me into the real news of the story, which is this. And even people who don't know Jim Comey from Jim Comer should be able to follow this. Jim Comey, of course, the one-time FBI director who investigated Hillary Clinton, fired by Trump. Jim Comer, chairman of the House Oversight Committee, leading the impeachment inquiry into President Biden. So he just gave an interview to Spectrum News, and he said the Republican House 
may not even hold a vote based on his committee's report because, quote, the math keeps getting worse. Now, what does that mean, the math keeps getting worse? Well, it refers to the shrinking House majority for Republicans. Remember, there was the pickup of George Santos's old seat, among other things, and Kevin McCarthy's resignation. And Congressman Comer has not yet come up with proof that Joe Biden got a dime. Doesn't mean there weren't phone calls and a couple of lunches with the Hunter's Business Associates, that part you know. So Comer says he's going to keep an eye on how the Democratic-controlled Senate handles the just-passed impeachment of Alejandro Mayorkas, the Homeland Security Secretary. And we'll see how Senate treats that, which is, according to Chuck Schumer, going to be quickly, as to whether or not we impeach Joe Biden over here or are we just focused on holding him accountable. The accountability, I hope, will come this year, but it may come next year with a new president, a new attorney general. Okay, blatantly suggesting that even if he can't impeach Joe Biden, if Trump wins, that the Trump administration will pursue a criminal case against Biden, which Trump has said in the past, or strongly hinted at in the past, as payback. My goal, says Comer, is to get the truth out there and hold people accountable for wrongdoing. That may encompass impeachment. If it doesn't, that's fine with me. Now, what he doesn't say is that his star witness has got huge problems now. He's being accused by the Federal Bureau of Investigation of being a liar. Not just because they're out to help Biden or anything else. Because they've investigated this guy. He's changed his story. His travel records indicate he wasn't where he said he was. He changed the dates of the story, so he'd be talking about stuff that was happening with Vice President Biden in 2015, not with former Vice President Biden in 2017. Kind of a huge difference. And so there may not even be a vote on the Biden impeachment. I mean, I think the other reference to the math changing is not just about the shrinking majority, but the fact that there are Republicans out there who are up for re-election this year who don't like the idea of impeaching Biden without any stronger proof. Um, Biden's campaign raised a lot of money in January. And rather than go to a news story on it, just to give you a sense of the kind of press release stuff that I and every other reporter gets, in a powerful display of enthusiasm and strength to kick off the election year, Team Biden-Harris announced that it raised more than $42 million in January and has amassed a $130 million war chest, the largest for any Democratic ticket in history at this point in the cycle. What's more, January was the campaign's third consecutive record-breaking month for its grassroots fundraising. While Donald Trump burns through cash trying to salvage his MAGA agenda and his dignity generally, Team Biden-Harris is using its historic resources to build a winning operation that is reaching voters who will decide this election. Well, if it's reaching so many voters, how come the president's poll numbers are so abysmal? 
Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. All right, story two. President Biden, according to CNN, has told his top aides to more aggressively highlight the, and here's the quote, crazy shit that Donald Trump says in public. And the only reason I'm not using an S word is because that was actually said on the air. So I don't know. Cable seems to have loosened up, at least when it comes to one former president, uh, words it can say on the air. So while uh, CNN anchor uh, Dana Bash was um, anchoring a program and wondered out loud whether it was okay to throw out the S word on cable news, or maybe it was too early in some parts of the country, MJ Lee, she's the woman, White House, uh, White House correspondent, who, you know, during that angry presser that Biden held where he said, you know, that's your opinion, that's your opinion, that is not the opinion of the press, when she talked about polls showing that many consider him too old to run for second term. We're told, says MJ Lee on the air, that the thrust of the president's direction was to significantly ramp up the campaign's efforts to highlight the crazy shit that Trump says in public. Widespread concern among Biden aides that too many voters appear to have forgotten about some of the more outrageous and unacceptable moments of the Trump presidency. As one senior campaign advisor put it recently, they've been surprised by how many voters appear to put on rose-colored glasses when looking back on the Trump years. Uh, Amar Musa, who is the Biden campaign's director of rapid response, told CNN that Biden and Trump are polar opposites. So this is all Biden spin, obviously. But it is true that Look, when time passes, former presidents tend to become more popular. Well, this is not just a former president, but one, a guy who's almost clinched the Republican nomination, and two, has made a remarkable comeback despite four indictments, the Eugene Carroll trial, the civil fraud trial, and it's 300 and... $55 million penalty against this company. And look, so people now remember some of the good things Trump did. The economy was cruising up until the 2020 and the time of the pandemic. They less remember how he handled the pandemic. Uh, people remember that the border seemed under control. They less remember some of the harsh tactics that President Trump used. And then you can go on and on and on. I and mean, there's all this other stuff, you know, wanting to buy Greenland. I always use that as an example because it says, oh yeah, remember when he did that? Now, Nancy Pelosi was on Jen Psaki's MSNBC show. So the former Speaker of the House with the former Biden press secretary. And Pelosi, talking about Trump and Putin said on the air, what does he have on Donald Trump that he has to be constantly catering to Putin, telling Putin to go into these countries, NATO countries? What do you think, Saki said? What do you think Putin has on him? 
I mean, given that he refuses to criticism, he seems to be a fanboy of him. Are you worried? Pelosi, I don't know what he has on him, but I think it's probably financial. I think it's probably financial. Either something financial he has on him or something on the come. I don't know what that means. If that's correctly transcribed. Now, I think this is really irresponsible on Nancy Pelosi's part. This is sheer speculation. She has no idea whether the Kremlin has anything on Donald Trump. But, oh, I I think probably uh, Putin does, and it's probably financial. And she's got nothing, nothing to back it up. And I think that's irresponsible for a former speaker. You know, you and I could kick it around over a beer. But for the former speaker of the House to go and say things, these things on the air, when it's clear, she's just, you know, pulling this out of her wherever... I don't know. Now, also last night, story three, Donald Trump spent an hour with Laura Ingram at a town hall. And there was an earlier town hall with Nikki Haley on Sunday night. And the subject of Alexei Navalny came up. And Trump did this. He praised Navalny as a very brave guy because he chose to return to Russia, where he's been jailed since 2021, the year he went back. Trump said he probably would have been a lot better off staying away and talking from outside, meaning a lot better for his physical safety, but not a lot better from the Valley's point of view because he felt like he needed to go back and lead the opposition, knowing full well the risks that he were taking. People thought that could happen, and it did happen, Trump said. And it's a horrible thing. Now, notice the name he didn't mention yet. Asked about uh, outrage over Navalny's death. Trump said, it's happening here. He said his indictments are all because of the fact that I'm in politics. He actually called himself a form of Navalny. Now, needless to say, many Trump critics would strongly, vehemently, and uh, ferociously object to that. But by pivoting to that, Trump doesn't mention Putin's name in this town hall. He says Navalny was brave. It's a horrible thing that he died. Who's responsible? That he doesn't address. Now, Laura Ingram also asked Trump about classified documents and whether he thinks Biden should be prosecuted. You know, there's this effort to uh, make the cases equivalent. He didn't really answer on the Biden part, but he insisted that he had the right to take the documents under the Presidential Records Act. I was allowed to do what I did, absolutely allowed. So, Laura followed up and said, well, why didn't you just return the documents that were found by FBI agents executing a search warrant at Mar-a-Lago? Why don't you just hand them over when they requested them? This is the exact quote. I mean, they requested them. You could have just handed them over, probably save yourself a lot of trouble. First of all, I didn't have to hand them over. But second of all, I would have done that. We were talking, and then all of a sudden, they raided Mar-a-Lago. Well, the party leaves out is... These documents, unlike in the case of Joe Biden, who voluntarily returned his documents, however recklessly or sloppily he may have handled them, when 
they were discovered by people on the staff, I guess. Trump's documents were repeatedly subpoenaed. And he didn't decline, uh, fully comply with those subpoenas. He turned over some and represented to the archives, I guess, that all classified documents had been returned. That was not true. He still had some there. So after a couple of rounds of uh, negotiations and subpoenas, that's when the FBI executed the search warrant. But Trump now claims he had the right to take them away with him, which is not what the Presidential Records Act says. Meanwhile, back on the current president, and Politico has this story, New York Times publisher A.G. Salzberger saying the other day, the White House is extremely upset, that's the quote, extremely upset about its coverage of President Biden's age, but that the newspaper, here, here's the quote from Salzberger, in an interview with the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism, we're going to continue to report fully and fairly, not just on Donald Trump, but also on President Joe Biden. He is a historically unpopular incumbent and the oldest man ever to hold this office. We've reported on both of those realities extensively, and the White House has been extremely upset about it. So the Biden campaign is not happy about that. The Biden White House is not happy about that. And obviously, news of Biden's age was thrust back into the news by the special counsel's report, Robert Herr, who called him an elderly man with a poor memory. Salzberger, we are not even saying this is the same as Trump's five court cases or that they are even. They are different, Trump and Biden. But they are both true, and the public needs to know both these things. And if you're hyping up one side or downplaying the other, no side has a reason to trust you in the long run. So, White House extremely upset according to this report, according to this argument from Salzburg. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Let's get back into what's going on in Russia with story number four. As the way the Washington Post puts it, a man's corpse found riddled with bullets and run over by a vehicle in Spain last week was identified as that of Russian military pilot Maxim Kuzminov, who flew his uh, helicopter to Ukraine back in August in a dramatic defection, according to Ukrainian officials. His apparent murder, well, if your body is riddled with bullets and run over by a car, it doesn't sound very apparent to me, but his apparent murder, after a very public threat to his life last year on Russian state television, has raised questions about whether this was a Russian-ordered assassination. Uh, I'm going to think about this for about five seconds and say, yeah, it apparently was. And here's some stuff to back it up. News of Kuzminov's violent demise happening just days after the sudden death of Alexei Navalny in a Siberian gulag. Spokesman Ukraine's tele, uh, excuse me, the spokesman for Ukraine's, Ukraine's intelligence service 
confirmed to the Washington Post that the body was, in fact, Kuzminov's. Russian officials have not claimed responsibility for the killing. No, that's not how it worked. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov declined to comment, saying it wasn't not on the Kremlin's agenda, he said. You buying this? This more. Sergei Narishkin, head of the Russian Foreign Intelligence Service, spoke to Russian journalists Tuesday, saying, in Russia, it is common to speak of the dead or say nothing at all. Speak well of the dead, I should say, or nothing at all. This traitor and criminal already became a moral corpse at the moment when he was planning his dirty and terrible crime. This was according to Russian news agencies like TASS. In October, the host of the Russian state television program, Vesti Nadelli, aired a segment on Kuzminov's defection. The report ended by quoting three masked men in camouflage identified as special forces members of Russian military intelligence, saying they'd been given the order to eliminate Kuzminov. Quote, we will find the man and punish him to the full extent of the law of our state for treason. We have long arms, said another of these masked agents. He will not live to see the trial. Now, based on that, do you have any doubt that this guy was knocked off, shot and run over? by Russian special forces. He will not live to see the trial. Also, you talk about Putin feeling emboldened, especially since Ukraine is short on ammunition and Russia was able to recapture a town that had been a site of a bloody battle for months. Russian authorities have now issued a warrant for Alexei Navalny's brother, Oleg Navalny, just four days after Alexei died in that prison in the Arctic. This is, again, an article from the Russian news agency TASS announcing the warrant, providing few details, only that he was wanted under an article of the criminal code. Now, this Navalny had previously been convicted for helping to organize unauthorized protests against COVID restrictions, and at that time given a one-year suspended sentence. Meanwhile, adding to the, I don't even want to say suspicion, adding to the blatant cover-up of all this, there's a video in, a video in which Lud, I'm not going to pronounce this correctly, but Lud Miller, Navalny, mother of the dead human rights activist, said she has not been granted the opportunity to see her son's body and has not even been told where he is. So there happens to just be this Russian investigation where they can... Who knows if they'll ever even return the body? That's how despicable this whole thing is. Absolutely despicable. I mean, they're not even bothering to hide it. Now they want to arrest the brother. 
Now the special forces, apparently, allegedly, after those threats on Russian state TV, have killed the defector. And look, I mean, you can see where the, the guy who defects to Ukraine in the middle of a war would be considered guilty of treason. But does he come back and get a trial? No. He's just eliminated. And also, the United States uh, vetoing a UN Security Council resolution, resolution put forth by Algeria that would have called for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. Third time that the U.S. has done that. Humanitarian agencies... UN officials and other diplomats have argued that without a ceasefire, humanitarian aid at the scale that Gaza needs is not possible. And in fact, the UN's World Food Program is suspending crucial food deliveries in northern Gaza because it can't operate safely there. Israel's military has ordered two neighborhoods of Gaza City to evacuate amid uh, signs of hunger and mounting desperation. Well, there's another reason that wasn't cited here that has been reported by news organizations and that Hamas is looting a lot of this food aid, taking it away from the Palestinian people that it is somehow supposed to represent and keeping it for the terrorist organization. And Netanyahu had said that if Hamas diverted or looted or stole the food aid or the, and the humanitarian aid, that it would stop. So it's just a mess. By the way, uh, Nikki Haley's campaign leading up to Saturday's primary in her home state. She said she's not going to drop out till the American people close the door. And she says, this is bigger than me. Trump's a bully. It's getting meaner and more offensive by the day. Gotten more unhinged and unstable. She said, I feel no need to kiss the ring, and I have no fear of Trump's retribution. I'm not looking for anything from him. But that then prompted a uh, rather tough retort from Trump spokesman Stephen Chung. She's going to drop down and kiss ass when she quits, like she always does. It's the level of the campaign right now. But I think the most important thing that happened in this speech that Haley gave in South Carolina was when she choked up talking about her husband, who Trump has taken some sort of vague shots at. Where's the husband? He's a National Guardsman serving a year-long deployment in Africa after his early one in Afghanistan. And Nikki Haley said, Michael is at the forefront of my mind. And then she just She wasn't crying, but her voice was sort of trembling. I wish Michael was here today, and I wish our children and I could see him tonight, but we can't. He's serving on the other side of the world where conflict is the norm. And it was so striking to watch this because it was a burst of emotion that helped Hillary Clinton win the New Hampshire primary back in 2008. But, look, emotional moment or not, if, as polls indicate, Trump beats the former governor by anywhere from 20 to 40 points, 
20 to 36 points, actually, in various polls. The press will just say it's over. She can campaign all she wants. A reporter asked Biden yesterday whether he'd rather run against Trump or Haley. Oh, I don't care, he said and walked away. But given that Haley is 52, she somehow did end up as the nominee. I think he very much would care. Because Trump partially at 77 neutralizes the uh, age issue. And here's a uh, New York Times story saying that many blacks in South Carolina don't um, support Nikki Haley. That would be an important source of support for her. Reverend Joseph Darby, former executive at the NAACP in the state, she cast her lot in a very conservative, most right-wing Republican Party. She never did any outreach to the black community. All right, story five. The Atlantic has a piece by Barack Obama's ethics czar, Richard Painter. So he's a Dem. And he talks about Fonnie Willis after that whole hearing when she angrily testified. Willis is a public servant obligated to discharge the duties of her office. In this instance, the best interest of the public dictates that she withdraw from prosecuting the case. Um, It may well be that there's not a legal conflict of interest, writes Richard Painter. None of the factual allegations made by defendants support an inference that such prejudice could exist in this case. About the relationship between Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade, the boyfriend she hired as a chief prosecutor. Defense lawyers questioned them for hours, competing with each other to be the Ken Starr of Fulton County. They had been carrying on an extracurricular liaison while working together, but the defense did not show the relationship changed the way the case was prosecuted. But a boss should not have a romantic relationship with a subordinate. Once the romance starts, the professional reporting relationship ends. That's the rule in most workplaces. One does not supervise someone while sleeping with them at the same time. Whether the romantic relationship began before or after Willis hired Wade to work on the case is secondary. She had no business supervising his work or approving payments from Fulton County to him. This is why Fonnie Willis, says the Atlantic piece, needs to do what is in the best interest of her client, the people of the state of Georgia. She should step aside so that someone else can prosecute this case. I will take a wild guess that Fonnie Willis is not going to follow his advice. She might be forced off the case. I don't personally believe that's going to happen. But do I agree with Painter that given the salacious nature of the hearing, the relationship, the questions about cash, that she should step aside? It's hard to make a case against that. Well, we've uh, survived another episode here. Everything from the Eagles to Fonnie Willis. Uh, Thank you for your time. That's the big thing here. And that while you may be getting the podcast with a couple of ads, you can avoid that, by the way, by signing up on Apple iTunes. 
Um, you know, it's not like a television show where you got to hit the brakes at a certain time or you get kicked off the air. People don't realize what's called a hard break means the computer will literally take you off in mid-sentence if you don't get out earlier. That's one of the joys of live television. See you all tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. Music.